You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Our enemy is not the type of enemy that would sit back and allow the church to advance over him like a steamroller and then do nothing about it. He is powerful, he is resourceful, he is intelligent, he is crafty, he is... Um, He's not going to sit back and just allow the church to advance without putting to practice all that he has learned and all that he has at his disposal to stop it. And although our enemy is not omniscient and our enemy is not all-powerful, he will indeed use his knowledge and his strength to try and thwart what God might do through his church. And so it should come as no surprise as we look at the history of the church that we are presented with a series of roller coaster rides. There are good Events, there are bad events, there are positive things and negative things, advances and retreats, victories and defeats. There are good things and bad things that happen throughout the church history. In fact, John Stott said that church history is like a pendulum that swings between the positive and the negative and back and forth it goes with victories and defeats and advances and retreats. That's well stated. As we have seen as of late in the book of Acts, there are some good things and there are some bad things. And Luke is very honest with us about some of the negative things that happened in the church, some of the low water marks. And there are also, of course, some high water marks in the history of the church. Times when the church had positive things that happened and times when the church had negative things that happened. And recently it's all been positive, hasn't it? There were a lot of negative things that so far have happened in the book of Acts, like the persecution of the apostles, the arrest of the apostles, the imprisonment of the apostles, the death of Stephen, the persecution started by Paul, all of those negative things that happened. And then there are some high water marks. In fact, the last few chapters of Acts has been mostly a series of high water marks, good things. Uh, times when things were going positively. The Gospel has gone to the Samaritans and they've received the Spirit. The Gospel has gone to the Gentiles and they've trusted in Christ. And Caesarea now has a large Gentile population. The Apostle Paul, the persecutor, got saved. And they started the church in Antioch so they have a large, growing, prosperous, on-fire church that is prospering under the teaching of Paul and Barnabas in Antioch. And just when things couldn't get any better, they get a whole lot worse. And so now we're confronted with a very bleak, very dark, sort of a depressing time, something that probably struck the church as, oh no, not again, here it comes, another persecution. And we've looked at the persecution that the Sanhedrin started. We have looked at the persecution that Paul oversaw as the ringleader. And now we're seeing that there's another persecution, a third one, and this time it is not religious authorities persecuting a religious minority. This time it is not Jews persecuting Christians. This time it is not religious people at all. It is the civil government. So now, for the first time in the history of the church, we have a persecution that is being run with all of the power, all of the might, and all of the resources of the Roman Empire. This is Herod's persecution. And he's going to show his hatred for Christians. And he's going to launch out and do what he can to stop the Christian movement. And we're going to see how God brings all of that to a screeching halt in the life of Herod. 
And I want you to notice two things, because all of this really is just to set up this miraculous deliverance of Peter, which we're going to look at next week. I want you to notice that Herod's persecution of the church resulted in two things. First, the martyrdom of James, and then second, the imprisonment of Peter. The martyrdom of James and the imprisonment of Peter. In your Bibles, in Acts chapter 12, we're going to begin this chapter by looking at verses 1 through 5. Luke says that about this time, Herod the king had laid hands on some of those who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Now it was during the days of the unleavened bread. Now that's the chronicle of the martyrdom of James. The first apostle dies. Now all of verses 1 and 5 is to set up for us the events of chapter 12 of this miraculous deliverance that Peter experiences from going to prison and then escaping. And Herod becomes a key player in this whole event. So we have to understand the timing of this. We have to understand who is this Herod and why is he doing what he is doing. I want you to notice first that Luke says it was at about this time. What time is that? That is to say that it is in the ballpark of this time period when Agabus goes to Antioch and he gives his prophecy to Paul and to Barnabas. And then later on there is this famine. And after that famine in 46 A.D. is when Paul and Barnabas bring that relief money up to Jerusalem to assist in the relief of the saints who were in all of Judea at that time. It is in this time period that these events happen. Now, I want you to understand that chapter 12 actually fits into between a couple of verses in chapter 11. Because the death of this Herod that is being spoken of here at the end of the chapter when he's eaten by worms, and that's going to be fun when we get to that, that death of Herod occurs in 44 A.D., two years before the famine happens. So if we were to flesh out this timeline, it would be something like this. Probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 43, uh, 44, Agabus comes to Antioch and he gives his prophecy. Back in Jerusalem at about that same time are all of these events unfolding with the apostles. And Peter is imprisoned and he's released and then Herod dies. Two years after that there is this famine and Paul and Barnabas go up to Jerusalem probably in 47, maybe 48, somewhere in that neighborhood. Maybe as late as 49. So that's how it would flesh out. So keep in mind, chapter 12 actually fits back in chronologically in chapter 11. Now it says that in chapter 12 that Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to persecute them or to mistreat them. Now in your mind, you're probably thinking, Herod, who is he? Wasn't there a Herod at the birth of Jesus? And wasn't there a Herod? Didn't that Herod die? And yet here we have Herod again. Who's this Herod? There are actually five Herods mentioned in the New Testament. So let me run down them because these guys are an interesting lot of characters. The first Herod that's mentioned in the New Testament is Herod the Great. This is the Herod. He was in all modesty and humility, called Herod the Great. He ruled over Judea and Samaria and a lot of the northern area up by Tarsus and that region. He had a large kingdom. He was underneath of the Caesar at the time, who was Tiberius. Herod the Great ruled underneath of him, had a large empire. He was the Herod to whom the wise men appeared and said, where is he who was born king of the Jews? Because we saw his star in the east and we've come to worship him. And then Herod the Great said to them, when you find him, come back here and let me know so I can go worship him too. Big grin. Always intending, of course, to go kill this rival king. And when Herod the Great realized that the wise men had gone another way because they were warned in, in a dream not to go back to Herod, he was the one that had all of the male children two years and under in Bethlehem and the surrounding area slaughtered. That was Herod the Great. He was a bloodthirsty, ruthless man. He was cruel. He was not a Jew, but he ruled over the Jews. He was Idumean by descent. And he was a cruel tyrant. The Jews hated him. 
In fact, the Jews hated all of the Herods, but they particularly hated the patriarch of the family, Herod the Great. To give you an idea of how bloodthirsty and cruel this man was, when another kingdom, another region of the country had sort of betrayed him and this group of people had fallen into his disfavor, he didn't trust them anymore. And because one of his wives was a descendant of that nation, he had one wife and three of his sons murdered, executed. Just took care of his wife and three kids. One of his children he had executed five days before he himself died. He lured a bunch of religious leaders and Jews down from Jerusalem to Jericho where he had them imprisoned. And then before he died, he gave orders that these religious Jewish leaders should be executed immediately upon his death so that at least somebody in the region would be mourning when he died, even though because he knew that the Jews were not going to mourn his death. So he ordered that some prisoners be killed so that there would at least be some mourning going on when he died. That's how bloodthirsty and cruel he was. Now, of course, he dies early in the Gospel record. and He's replaced by a second Herod. We don't know much of him other than that he just ruled for a few years and then he died. He was replaced by Herod the Tetrarch. He's the one who's in in play most of the Gospels. It was Herod the Tetrarch that Jesus said, referred to as that fox. It was Herod the Tetrarch that had John the Baptist beheaded. He married and then he divorced. And then John, of course, um, denounced his divorce and his remarriage as unlawful, and that fell into disfavor with Herod the Tetrarch, so he took opportunity and had John the Baptist beheaded. It was Herod the Tetrarch that Jesus stood before at one of his trials. He is the uncle of the Herod that's mentioned in Acts 12. The Herod in Acts 12 is Herod Agrippa the first. Now you say, didn't Paul stand before an Agrippa? Paul stood before Herod Agrippa the second, who is the fifth Herod mentioned in the New Testament. So Paul stands before this Agrippa's son after this Agrippa dies at the end of this chapter. So you have Herod the Great, then you have a little no-name Herod in between him and Herod the Tetrarch who tried Jesus. Herod the Tetrarch was sent off into exile and replaced by Herod Agrippa who is his nephew. Now how did Herod Agrippa of Acts 12 get the throne? He planted some ideas in the minds of the emperor that Herod the Tetrarch would be a traitor. And so he won over the heart of the emperor and basically through treachery and deceit took the throne and had his uncle put in prison where he died. Bloodthirsty, cruel bunch of men, aren't they? This Herod Agrippa, his father was one of the ones who was executed by his grandfather, Herod the Great. And when Herod Agrippa's father was executed, his mother Bernice sent uh, Herod Agrippa off to Rome where he was raised by Tiberius in the emperor's household with his two sons, Caligula and Claudius. Now, Claudius is the one that's mentioned at the end of Acts chapter 11. He lived a very robust and wild and sowed his oats type of a lifestyle when he was younger. He racked up a huge debt that forced him to leave Rome. In the year 36 AD, he returned to Rome, but he insulted the emperor, and so he landed himself in prison for about a year. After Tiberius died, he was replaced by his son Caligula. Now, Caligula and Agrippa had grown up together. They were childhood buddies. They were good friends. So the first thing Caligula did was bring him out of prison and assign him rule over his grandfather's territory, part of it anyway, down by um, in Syria and, and north of Samaria. And so his good friend, his childhood buddy, really sort of like his brother, now as emperor, 
Caligula only lived a few years as emperor, and he was replaced by his brother Claudius. Well, when Claudius took the throne, he wanted to ingratiate Herod to him, and so he gave Herod rule over Samaria and all of Judea. So by the time we get to Acts chapter 12, Herod Agrippa I rules over the entire kingdom that his grandfather, Herod the Great, had ruled over. And you'll see in a couple weeks how prideful that made him, how arrogant that made him, that now he was the ruler over everything that Herod the Great was ruler over. And of course, he got all of it by treachery and by deceit. Caligula deposed his uncle and made him king. So that's the Herod. Bloodthirsty, deceitful, treacherous, and the Jews detested every last one of the Herods, except for this one. You know why they liked him? He did everything he could to endear himself to the hearts of his people, the masses. In fact, he moved the seat of the capital from Caesarea down to Jerusalem. And when he would go to Rome, he would play the part of a good Roman. He was cosmopolitan. He was as pagan as pagan could be. An idol worshiper and a heathen to the nth degree. But when he was in Jerusalem, he would play the part of an observant Jew. He would attend their festivals. He would attend their feasts. He would abide by their law. He would try and look and feel and act as Jewish as Jewish could be in order to endear himself to the Jews. He wasn't a Jew. He was Idumean. And there was one time that there's a a historian who says that there was one occasion when at one of the feasts they would come out and Herod Agrippa would read the law to the Jews and there was a statement in the law which said, you shall not put a foreigner over you as your king. And he read that and he started to weep and cry and oh how he felt bad that their law said they couldn't have a foreigner over them as king. And he loved the people so much and he started to cry and the people loved him so much they said, you are our brother, you are our brother, you are our brother. So he had managed to turn the hearts of the Jews back to him. And they loved him. And he did everything that he could to ingratiate and endear himself to the Jewish people. That's what's behind verse 1. Herod was very tolerant of the majority. And there's nothing that will win you the heart of the majority like persecuting the minority. Which is what he did. He rounded up a bunch of the believers in the church and he imprisoned them and put them away intending probably to kill many of them And in the midst of all of those who were imprisoned and some of those who were killed was James. This is not the James that wrote the book of James. This is James the brother of John. This is the James who asked the Lord Jesus to call down fire upon unbelievers. This is the James who with his brother John had earned the nickname Sons of Thunder. So James was this, I think, kind of a rambunctious. He was a go-getter. He was ambitious. He did something to make Herod mad enough at him that he would put him to death. And he put him to death with the sword. I think James was the type of person who made deadly enemies quickly. You don't do that if you're just a passive and meek and quiet type of person. There was a reason they called him, Jesus called him, son of thunder. It's because James, I think, was a go-getter as well as John. And he is the first apostle to be put to death. And listen to this. He is the only apostle whose death is mentioned in the New Testament. He's the first one to be martyred. And he is martyred with the sword. That's a significant little detail because it tells us two things. Listen, they had a, a law in Israel, in Deuteronomy, I think it's chapter 13. If a man was responsible for leading people astray after false gods and into idolatry, he was to be stoned. But if a man had led an entire city astray, that city was to be struck and put to death with the edge of the sword. Not stoning, but with the sword. So Herod has James killed with the sword. Two reasons. Number one, first to show his 
his willingness to abide by Jewish law. But second, it indicates that in Herod's thinking, James had taken the entire city after idols into this Christianity. He had led so many people astray that Herod wanted to make a statement and he had James put to death with the sword. So that's what's happened. Now you have one apostle dead and Herod senses that this is a good thing. The second thing that resulted from his persecution was not only the martyrdom of James, but the imprisonment of Peter. Look what Luke says in chapter 12, verse 3. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded also to arrest Peter. He took a poll, found out that his job approval ratings went up when he killed James. The murder of James, the execution of James, caused everybody to look favorably on Herod. Well, if you want to ingratiate yourself to people and you find that if you put to death an apostle that your approval rating goes up a couple of percentage points, then what are you going to do? You're going to buy yourself a couple more percentage points. Put to death another apostle. You've got 12 left, right? With Paul, you've got 12 more apostles. 12 apostles, you can space them out over the course of one or two years and every time your approval rating goes into the toilet, you can just get it right back out by snuffing out an apostle. And so that's what he does. You don't have to worry about the economy. You don't have to worry about justice being done or high taxes. When things aren't going well, you just kill an apostle. Well, when Herod finds out that the death of James pleased the Jews and that they were so thrilled with this, he decides, well, I'll just kill another apostle so he rounds up Peter. Now, here's his thinking. Peter is the ringleader of it. So if the death of James pleases the Jews, what is it going to do for them when they kill Peter? Oh, that's going to put them over the top in their adoration of Herod. But hold on a second. How is it that the apostles fell into such disfavor with the Jews? That's not how it's always been, has it? In fact, turn back to Acts chapter 4. I want you to see a couple things. Acts chapter 4. Verse 21. This happens after they've healed the man, the beggar at the temple. They've healed the beggar at the temple. They have um, stood before the Sanhedrin who have charged them with performing this miracle in the name of Christ. And then they've tried them. And Peter, of course, gives his defense. In verse 21, they had threatened them further. They let them go, finding no basis on which to punishment. But they let them go on account of the people because they were all glorifying God for what had happened. They didn't punish the apostles on account of the people. So many people had seen this. So many people were glorifying God because of what had happened. So many people liked the apostles that they didn't punish them. They didn't want to punish them because the masses were on the side of the apostles. Turn over to chapter 5, verse 13. Verse 12 says, At the hands of the apostles many signs and wonders were taking place among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. Verse 13, But none of the rest dared to associate with them. However, the people held them in high esteem. And this infuriated the Sadducees who wanted to be held in high esteem. So they rounded up the apostles again. And of course, that's when they're put into prison. And then the angel delivers them and says, go into the temple and and teach. So they do that. And the next day when they convene the trial, the soldiers come in and say, they're gone. Well, go back into the temple and arrest them. So they go back into the temple. And then Luke says in verse 26 that they arrested the apostles, but without violence because they feared the people that they would be stoned. They knew that if they're violent toward the apostles, the people will lynch them. So how do you go from being held in high esteem to being loved by all of the masses because you're performing signs and wonders and preaching the Word and people are coming to Christ? How do you go from that kind of favor to the point where Herod can put James to death and it pleases the people? 
And then he can arrest Peter, knowing that this is going to send them over the top in their adoration of Herod. How do you go from that to chapter 12? How did it happen? I think there are two things that explain it. One of them is a little historical thing that Luke doesn't mention. The second thing is something that Luke does mention in the narrative. And here they are. First, the historical thing. When Caligula was emperor during the reign of this Herod Agrippa in Acts chapter 12, he came up with this insane plan to erect a statue of himself as a god in the temple in Jerusalem. Insanity. Because that would have driven the Jews nuts. They would have revolted. And they would have had a massive revolt on their hands that would have resulted in bloodshed and basically a civil war if he did that. Now Herod talked Caligula out of it. He said, you can't do this. It'll cause a revolt. As much as you want to do this, don't do it. He begged him. He cajoled him. Finally, he, Caligula relented and he said, I won't do it. I won't put the temple, the idol up of me in the Jewish temple. Well, by that time, the Jews had already found out what Caligula's plan was and Jewish Roman uh, relationship was stretched so tight it was almost to the breaking point. They were about this close to having had enough of Roman rule. And Caligula's plan to erect a statue in the temple just almost sent them over the top. It's only about 20 years from this point that the Jews do revolt and Jerusalem is sacked and falls. So they have been... Jewish-Roman relationship has been stretched to the breaking point. It is about as tense as tense can get. The Jews hate the Romans more than you can possibly imagine, and they couldn't have hated them more. But at the same time, guess what's going on? The Jewish apostles are beginning to fraternize with the enemy. Gentiles. Romans. And who led the way in bringing these Roman Gentiles into the church? Peter. Cornelius. Not just Romans, but a Roman soldier. So the relationship has been stretched. Everything is tense. And here the apostles are saying, no, we've got to bring these guys in as brothers and sisters in Christ. And we need to accept them and love them and they are redeemed as well. That, my friends, is what I think changed this all over again. Now the Jews, all of the unsaved Jews are saying, we're not going to have anything of it. If you will align yourself with Rome, then we will hate you just as much as we hate the Romans. And so they fell out of popularity. That's what's going on in the background. They Herod found out that when he killed James, it caused the people, we're back in Acts chapter 12 now, it caused the people to look upon him favorably, and so he had Peter seized during the days of unleavened bread. That is a seven-day period after Pentecost. So you have Pentecost followed by a one-week celebration. And so Herod has Peter arrested with the intent, obviously, of killing him, He does this during the days or during Passover, and his intention is to keep him in prison. And then after the days of unleavened bread, after the celebration, which they generally referred to the whole thing, Passover and unleavened bread, they referred to it as Passover. After that, excuse me, after that was all over with, they were, he was going to bring Peter out and publicly try him. Now his arrest of Peter and his plan to try Peter are brilliant in their timing. Here's why. The Jews had a law against trying prisoners publicly during festival and feast times. So when Herod brought Peter in, he refused to try him during the feast, thus showing how much he was Jewish in his thinking and his love for the law and endearing the Jewish people to him. And he didn't want to do it during the feast anyway because everybody would be busy. Nobody would be paying attention to a trial and an execution when everybody's going to the temple and coming back and sacrificing animals and having festival worship and enjoying a good time. Nobody's going to pay attention to that. So Herod plans, I'll do this when everybody's in Jerusalem for this feast. After all of the activities have stopped, everything's slowed down, everybody will be there from all over the country, and 
Nobody will have anything to do. Because all the activities will be over with. So then everybody will pay attention to what's going on. So he leaves Peter in prison until after the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And he's going to bring him out and he's going to try him publicly. And that would be the maximum PR campaign that you could possibly want. He is going to get maximum exposure in front of a maximum number of people because everybody's there for Passover. And it is going to be public. And if there's anything that will endear him to all of the subjects all over his kingdom, it'll be the execution of the ringleader of this heretical religious sect that threatens our law. And he'll do it in front of everybody. Masterful PR campaign. That's what Herod fabricates up. And in the meantime, he has Peter guarded by four squads of soldiers. A squad was four soldiers. So four times four is 16 soldiers. 16 soldiers for one unarmed man. You might say that Peter was placed in the maximum security wing of Herod's prison. Why is that? Why 16 soldiers? What happened the last time Peter was put in prison? He escaped, right? Not just him, but all of the rest of the apostles as well. Well, Herod's, Herod's not going to risk that happening. He doesn't want to risk the embarrassment of what would happen when you've, you've hatched this great PR campaign. You're going to put to death the ringleader of the apostles. And he knows the last time Peter was put into prison, he escaped. So he stations 16 men to guard Peter on rotation. They're taking turns round the clock, maximum security. As if Herod is thinking to himself... He'll never escape. I'm, I'm going to make sure that this little Houdini apostle doesn't get away. I'm going to really guard him with all kinds of soldiers. But friends, it doesn't matter if it be 1,600 soldiers. The Lord's going to do what the Lord's going to do. Whether it's 16 or 1,600, it doesn't matter. And the Lord is going to show Herod, we're going to see next week, just how futile his plan is. 16 soldiers. And he's under guard. Now friends, what I have just described to you is the darkest situation that you could possibly imagine if you're in the first century church. One apostle has been murdered. Another apostle's execution is imminent. All of the power, the might, the authority of the Roman Empire is behind Herod. It's not just the temple guard that he has to round up in order to, round, uh, that he has to bring with him to round up Christians like Paul did. Paul just had the temple guard. Herod has Roman soldiers. And he has fingers into every corner of the Roman Empire. And his buddy Claudius, his childhood friend, the emperor, is behind it 100%. He's in favor of it. And it has the approval of the masses. And it's something that is going to just feed Herod's insatiable pride. And they have taken Peter and they have locked him away in maximum security. That is as bleak, that is as dark as it gets. And the clock is ticking away. His trial is coming at the end of this festival week. And they know what's going to happen. They know that the crowd wants Peter dead. They know that Herod wants Peter dead. Peter has done nothing other than just being the leader of the Christians. And they're going to kill him. Now friends, I ask you, have you ever faced situations like that? Are you facing something today that is bleak and dark? And you're wondering, how am I going to get out of this? How am I going to get through this? Maybe it's financial. Maybe it's a wayward child. An unsaved spouse. Maybe it's somebody that you want to see come to the Lord. Maybe it's something in your job. Maybe an illness. Maybe the death of a close friend or a relative. Does it seem like it is as dark as it can possibly get? And does it seem like you're being held down by 16 soldiers? What do God's people do when situations like that arise? God's people do the only thing God's people can do. Verse 5. Look what it says. So Peter was kept in prison. 
but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. They pray. Prayer is the atmosphere in which God's people live and breathe. Prayer is the arena, the, the, the place where God does His work. The church knows that whatever God's will is, it's going to be done, but they also are bringing their petitions to the Lord and saying, Lord, here is what we ask. We ask for Peter's deliverance. We are praying fervently. I think that this was a, a long period of time when the church was meeting and they were praying for Peter. They've just witnessed the death of James and it's gotten dark. And now Peter is in prison. And they cannot, for the life of them, look at the future, their future, without Peter. And so they do the only thing they can do. They don't pick it. They don't demand their rights. They don't hold up signs and chant outside of Herod's temple. What do they do? They pray. That's all they can do. And because they pray, verse 5 is not the end of the story. Because they pray, as we'll see next week, God is going to do something that only God can do. Because our God is the God of impossible and dark situations. When we are at our worst, that's when God does His best. When we are at our weakest, that is when He is strongest. When it is darkest, that is when He is the brightest. And so they pray. One apostle dead, another's execution is imminent. And they pray. And friends, I would go further than just asking you to pray about your situation. I would ask you to do this. Find five or ten saints who will pray with you. If you're facing a dark situation, find some people who will carry that burden with you to the Lord and encourage you in it and pray about it until it is resolved. Find people who will commit. There's people sitting around you who will do that. Peter was kept in prison, but the church prayed. And because the church prayed, what happens in the rest of the chapter is God's story of his miraculous deliverance of the Apostle Peter. And we'll look at that next week. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you that you are a God of impossible circumstances and that you bless us in so many ways that you look out for us and protect us. And Father, when things are darkest for us, we know that they are the lightest for you. And there is nothing that comes into our lives. There is nothing that overtakes us that is not first approved by you and seen by you and allowed by your gracious hand to come into our lives. We thank you that everything, even the dark times, are things that you use for your own glory and for the good of your people. And Father, we pray that you would give us the grace to trust you through them, to pray about them, and to do everything which we can do, which is only to pray. And we know that when we pray, you are honored and glorified in it, and in the answers to our prayers as you exalt yourself in our midst. We thank you that you are such an awesome prayer-answering God and that you love us enough to include us into your eternal plan in prayer. We commit ourselves to you and this word and the lessons that we've learned today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.